This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're talking about dinosaurs with three guests who all spend their time uncovering and preserving the immense amounts of fossils found here in the American West. I'm John Hinkla, and I'm a research associate with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in the Earth Sciences, uh, specifically the Paleontology Department. And I brought a couple of my favorite uh, students of all time, Jake Percival and Megan Sims. Hi, um, I'm a sophomore in high school, and I have just been on John's research team since sixth grade. Hi, I'm Megan. I'm the collection manager for vertebrate paleontology at the University of Kansas. John, Jake, and Megan have all had a persistent love of dinosaurs that started when they were kids. My story goes back, I guess, to just being a wide-eyed elementary school-aged kid that loved dinosaurs, couldn't get enough of it, and I was fortunate enough at nine years old to take a family vacation to Wyoming where we met some ranchers that had fossil-like dinosaurs on their land. I stumbled upon one of these uh, fossilized dinosaur remains, and that started me down a path of just asking a ton of questions like a lot of young people are prone to do. Fast forward 30 years later, I've been digging that same hole in the ground 30 field seasons in a row, finding all kinds of information about the paleo environment, not just the dinosaur bones that are in this quarry, but also the leaf fossils and the, the invertebrate fossils and other like uh, abiotic environmental data that's helped me start at least um, after 30 years to answer some of those nine-year-old questions that I had. Uh, We're still not there yet. I still don't have great answers for a ton of the mysteries, but we have sort of a path towards it, and I've found myself in cahoots with some great researchers in Denver who are also very eager to answer some of those questions as well. I knew from my earliest memory that I wanted to be a paleontologist. My dad was very cool when I was little, and when I was two or three, took me to see Jurassic Park at the theater. And that, I guess, imprinted on me being so young. And so that's when I decided that that's what I wanted to do. For me, I've always liked them since I was little. I think it's because uh, my parents, when I was little, didn't let me watch like typical kid shows when I was like two, three. And so all I really had was documentaries. So I, and the only one I liked was Walking with Dinosaurs. And that really imprinted on me. And I had like collections of dinosaur toys. And so I'd always been interested in that. When I think about our stories and how we all ended up working together in the field, there's a there's a thread of just persistence that goes through it where it's not always obvious how to how to find yourself plop down in your sort of dream scientific career. Sometimes it takes a little outside the box thinking, a little bit of luck, but definitely that persistence thread. I'd love to hear about what it feels like to be out in the field and in that hot sun and and kind of the reality of of being on a dig. Can you can you describe that a little bit for me? Well, I think that a lot of that changes as I've gotten older. But even from the beginning, it was just it was really cool. In the moments that you did find something and all that and like when I remember I'd go out prospecting with John, like that was my favorite thing to do. But it does get really hot and it's dry. And so there's also like, it's not just pure like happiness all the time. There's always frustration. If you can like stay positive through those like frustrating or tough times, then like it's just going to be great because it's mainly fun and happy experiences. It's unfortunate that 
the fossils tend to be in these places that are not always like um, hospitable for you know the bulk of the work day. We do a lot of our work early in the morning, a lot of it at night or in the evening when it's not so oppressively hot. But of course, we need that sort of that environment, that uplifted like rocky environment that's not vegetated to find our fossils. And it presents a bunch of challenges just getting large crews of, of volunteers, especially young ones, into the field. And working on big fossils and collecting them in the field also requires teamwork and community. So you get to be friends with the people that you're with and you really feel like you're working together versus the mammalian trip I went on where you're all very individual. And that just has a very different sort of connection with the people that you're with. And I just, I like the community aspect of dinosaur collecting better. Totally. These things are big, right? And they take big teams of people working together to move. And I think that like part of the experience is the hot sun. Like that's almost what's kind of fun about it. it in my opinion at least. It's kind of fun being out there. Like it's 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 really hot, but it just makes it so much more rewarding. We were talking about, you know, logistical challenges and the remoteness of the field. I'd love to just hear a little bit about some of the work that you're doing in Grand Staircase, which is, you know, I, I know from conversations with you is quite remote. So can you tell us a little bit about where you're working out there, generally where you're working out there and what kind of questions you're asking? I'd love to talk about the Grand Staircase. It's one of my favorite places to do field paleontology. Uh, and some of my favorite field memories come from Southeast Utah. Simply because of that remote element, I mean, the Denver team is working uh, in Madagascar and in Egypt and in remote parts of the Mexican desert and sort of all over the world. But I think the most remote field site we have is in Grand Staircase Escalante. It's a million acres of public land sort of set aside many years ago with the intention of it just being sort of a pristine wilderness area and to protect the not only fossil legacy of the area, but also the um, anthropological and archeological sites that are in the region. So when you're dealing with a million acre field area, you really do feel like just like ants out there doing busy work in the middle of nowhere. And getting into these sites can be complicated. The Grand Staircase, they limit where you can bring a wheeled vehicle. So like Jeeps and stuff are how we get a lot of our fossils out in say North Dakota. We even use like equipment like bobcats and skid steers. Uh, in, the, in the Grand Staircase, we are using human volunteer power to do everything. The payoff is that the, the fossils are incredible. We're finding hand over fist new species of dinosaur and great examples of dinosaurs that we knew already existed, but we're finding better examples of them. It's the most fossiliferous region I've ever collected fossils in. Some of these stories I'll tell you about the adversity of getting there. You might say, well, like, why do you bother? But the answer is because the fossils are incredible. What's cool about Southern Utah is I think one of my favorite groups of animals that we find there are these ceratopsians. That's the dinosaurs, you may be familiar with triceratops, which is one of them that had three horns, a big frill, and a beak. They're known for having a beak and these big cheek horns and oftentimes frills and brow horns as well. But there's a huge diversity of them in southern Utah. In the formations that we dig uh, in Wyoming, there's one triceratops. I was going to say one of the best museum exhibits in the world is the ceratopsian exhibit at the Natural History Museum in Utah. They place the skulls all along the wall on the phylogenetic tree so you can trace the evolution of these different ceratopsians and see when they gained or lost horns or when the frills became crazy or more modest. But it's very visual, and so I highly recommend going to see it. 
Can you describe for me what Southeast Utah looked like when these incredible dinosaurs were around? Southeastern Utah now is known for being a hot, dry, high elevation desert. But at the time of the dinosaurs, this was coastal paradise. We call it Laramidia, is the name that we give for this sliver of continent that existed where we are today in the American West, along what was then the coast of a shallow interior seaway. Basically, during Cretaceous times, the Gulf of Mexico flooded almost into Alaska up through the center of this continent, creating two continents where now we have North America. At the time the dinosaurs were here, there were uh, two continents split by a shallow inland sea. And the continent in the eastern side of the world is called Appalachia. And the name we give for the continent out here in the American West is Laramidia. So the Laramidia Project is what we call this whole research agenda, where we go up and down the North American Cordillera uh, along all these Rocky Mountains and look at different fossil sites that were deposited at the same time in a big region. So southeastern Utah was covered in a lush sort of tropical floodplain between the ancient mountains that were more or less where they are today and a coastal environment along you know, the, the beach. And in that sort of margin between the high country and the beach was this perfect, lush, green, fertile place for dinosaurs to evolve. We think because of some specific sort of encroachments of the sea and some mountain building events that sort of divided up that coastal plain, we had a whole lot of speciation. So things kind of got regionally endemic as you go up and down this ancient coast, we see southeastern Utah has some very different dinosaurs than they find at the same time in, say, Alberta, Canada. But it's a very interesting, diverse time. It's basically the most cosmopolitan. It's the heyday of dinosaurs. It's peak diversity for dinosaurs. So if you like the horned ones um, that had the big frills, this you could go back and see you know, dozens of these different species represented, some with five horns, some with three horns, some with crazy beaks, some that were small, some that were large. If you're in tyrannosaurs like T-Rex, well, these formations in southern Utah offer, you know, half a dozen different tyrannosaurs that lived sort of on the same coastal plain. So it's a very diverse time. For those of us who really like uh, to imagine these dinosaurs as they were in life, this is the time you would want to go back in time to see, because here they are all represented. Do we know why this time period was so diverse? What was going on that made these animals so cool to us now? (laughs) You know, those are some of the mysteries we're still working on, some of those great questions that are tougher to answer. But in evolution, you see a lot of times these peak diversity moments for any group of animals uh, or plants. There's um, regional separation. So we think that maybe like encroachments of this ancient sea that sort of separated different groups just long enough for them to sort of get their own unique character. And then by the end of the Campanian time, there at the, towards the end of the Cretaceous, you have mountain building events that are separating different populations. And these, these separations geographically allowed different groups to sort of radiate into their niche uh, very specifically. And it was also a, a, a warm, wet time. Dinosaurs like coastal environments. And this was a time where that environment existed on you know a continent scale. It was you know, you mentioned how fossiliferous the Grand Staircase Escalante was, and I was wondering if we know why. I think there's a few answers for that question. There's, there's the fact that Southeast Utah was a place that a lot of dinosaurs lived. So that's a good place to start if you're looking for a lot of dinosaurs. They, a lot of dinosaurs lived here, and that has to do with the environment at the time being very sort of dinosaur-friendly. You had a, a real diversity of plant life, and the environment was great for the big herbivorous sort of plant-eating dinosaurs. And where you find them, you oftentimes find 
the larger carnivorous dinosaurs that were, you know, snacking on the herbivores. So that's the first answer. The second answer is that the rock type and the environment, the abiotic conditions during the time were great for preserving fossils. And that has to do, we think, with sedimentation rates, like how much sand was building up, how fast. That's probably like the environment at the time had a lot of mountain building events and also this coastal sea and that gradient of sort of erosion down to deposition is great for preserving fossils. So I guess two answers there, but neither one of them is super specific. As somebody who doesn't know how to look for fossils or how to spot them, how many am I walking by on a, on a daily basis? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Probably a few, especially if you live down here in Southeast Utah, for sure. It blows people's minds when you take them out for the first time and you're like, that's a fossil, that's a fossil, that's a fossil. They really are all over the place, right? Yeah. If you know what you're looking for, they're way easier to find. But it's super easy to pass them by because sometimes they'll have dirt on them. Because they do. They look like rocks, when they're, especially when they're more fragmented or when they're just sticking out of the ground. They might look like a root a little. It's, it's just crazy how many there are out there. You know, a lot of people are asking, oh, well, how many fossils did I walk over today? And really, subconsciously, they're asking, how many dinosaur fossils did I walk over today? And that's what you would find a lot of out here in the West and in Southeast Utah. But wherever you live, you're surrounded by fossils everywhere. They just might be of a different age, going back hundreds of millions of years. In the rocks preserved out West are the fossil data that basically hold up our understanding of how the world was made, what our place is in it, how life on Earth sort of evolved and became the world that we know now. This, to us, is our collective natural history that belongs to the collective human race. For that reason, we all tend to be diehard public land supporters. It's heartbreaking for us to see when politics sort of pivot a little bit and we lose some of those public lands to private stakeholders. It can be complicated trying to find the data we need to complete our research. Bears Ears is a great example of that. Escalante, at one point, there was outside forces threatening to sell off parts of that. Fossils have their own sort of set of politics, and um, one of the keys to sort of making sure that we have enough data to understand the world around us is making sure that the sources of that data are protected. Curious, following up and thinking about, okay, I'm stepping over these fossils every day now. My life has changed. Once they're at the point where I'm, like, seeing them, how stable are they in the environment? Like, how are they going to be sticking around once they're exposed for a while? Or are they, like, rapidly breaking down once they're exposed to the surface? For example, like, where we dig in Wyoming is in, usually it's pretty cemented sandstone. It's pretty hard stuff. And sometimes we'll cover things, leave them for the next season, you know, if, it, if we run out of time to dig it and they'll be okay. They've been there 60 million years and what's another year, you know? But there's something that's preserved in a different way Then, as soon as you expose it to air, it might start to degrade. And so there's lots of especially invertebrate and like insect fossils that preserve sort of more like a flat image on a rock versus like a 3D specimen like we get with dinosaur bones. And those are very, very fragile. And you could just sort of dust your finger across the top of the rock and dust away that insect. So 
it's kind of on an individual basis, and it all goes back to how it's preserved in the first place. A lot of the dinosaurs, they're pretty safe. They're big and chunky and beefy usually, so they're basically rocks themselves at this point. And this is why so. when, when we walk through museums, we have a sense of awe, because if you think about everything that lives dies, but not everything that dies makes a fossil. So it's kind of rare that anything makes a fossil in the first place. Then the second scarcity issue is that there's not that many people looking for them, trained to recognize what they are. And then it's a, it's a small miracle of, of field work and glue and tedious amounts of hours and time to get that fossil sort of put back into the condition that you can actually recognize it for what it is, compare it to other things that have are living today and have been found fossilized in the past and figure out what is the significance of this bone or trace fossil or track and then keeping it in a museum like the work that Megan does, making sure it lasts for hundreds of years where it can be studied by multiple generations of people as technology advances and new ideas come onto the plane. That takes quite a bit of, of hard work and time and luck. So when you walk through a museum and you see a dinosaur skeleton standing there, just consider just how mind-blowingly unprobable that that is. It, it's not as simple as dinosaurs lived, dinosaurs died, people found them, now we know the end of this story. It's, there's so much work that goes into that, hundreds of thousands of human hours put behind every single skeleton that you see on display somewhere. You know, you've touched on this in, in different ways, but I would really love to hear, like, what is it that has so captivated you about dinosaurs? Like, what, what has kept your attention and your interest in this, you know, challenging field, like, for, for such a long time or just, you know, made you want to spend all your, you know, your time doing it? What, what do you love about, about paleontology and dinosaurs? Well, for me, one of the main things is that there's always something new to discover. There's always something new to learn. And there's always questions to be asked, big questions too. I just think that's so interesting. I also just think that the animals that we find are just fascinating throughout all eras. Every single era before us is almost like an alien world. Like, it's so different. It's, it's really, really cool to me for that reason. The field of paleontology for me was this window into like how the world actually works is actually a giant mystery. And it's a real stark example of like, there is no right answer right now. And it's up to you to sort of pick away at it. There's a freedom in that, that there is no right answer right now. Fossil environment that we find is like a world that we don't live in and we can't understand perfectly. And those mysteries are just so addictive. Along those lines with dinosaurs specifically, they're the most enigmatic fossil group that is the most disparate from anything living today going back to the observational data like we have the least amount of that for things like dinosaurs because they don't have a clear analog now well i can't thank the three of you enough for coming out and telling us about your experiences yeah telling us about dinosaurs it's such cool stuff to hear about well thanks for the invitation this has been a real treat we love moab and we love southeastern utah and all of the incredible fossils here to learn more or listen to more Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spalding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. 
And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.